0: Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher do not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 94 of History of the Marine Corps. Post-War Disillusionment, Part 1 After World War I, U.S. citizens questioned the purpose of the war. Millions of people died, and it wasn't clear what problems were actually solved from the Great War. Many U.S. citizens thought that the United States entered the war for no good reason, and in the years leading up to World War II, pacifism became the fastest growing movement in America. This anti-war sentiment had a big impact on the Marine Corps, and they had to take drastic steps to maintain a competent fighting force. This episode discusses the significant cut in manpower forced by Congress, the Corps' attempt to bring in recruits using sports, defining an officer promotion selection board, and dealing with crime sprees in the United States. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. For the first few months after the war, veterans received a warm welcome from U.S. citizens everywhere they went. But as time went on, a period of post-war disillusionment set in, and the enthusiastic love once received soon disappeared. In 1926, a movie called What Price Glory was released, and it echoed the country's sentiment. The co-author was a Marine who served in World War I captain lawrence t stallings he served at bella wood with three five, and he was wounded multiple times by german machine gun fire he spent the next two years recovering in the hospital and during those two years he brooded on how pointless the war was his movie captured his drama and it suggested that glory and fame may not be worth what a person must lose or give up getting it john ford a famous film director and a naval officer, directed a recreation in 1952. It's actually free on YouTube if you want to check it out. Most U.S. citizens shared Stallings' opinion on the war, and the romanticization of war soon turned to contempt. This change of heart had a significant impact on the Marine Corps. The younger generation no longer saw glory in battle, and many potential recruits lost interest in military service. Without a war to fight and the population losing interest in military service, Congress cut the Marine Corps' active duty strength. On June 30, 1918, the Marine Corps had an active duty strength of 52,819, but Congress slashed the authorized strength to 1,093 officers and 27,400 enlisted the following year the Corps had a difficult time finding appropriate Marines for the permanent officer positions. It was flooded with temporary officers wanting to receive permanent commissions. They ranged from young men with absolutely no experience to older men who have been in for over 30 years. The permanent officers currently serving in the Corps were fulfilling most Captain Billets, as well as higher pay grades, but the remaining Captain slots. And all lieutenant positions were hard to fill. The Corps found it difficult to satisfy the requirements set by Congress, and the limited positions, coupled with many men having similar qualifications, didn't help the situation. The Marine Corps didn't have a promotion system like today. Throughout the history of the Marine Corps, the decision to promote officers was almost exclusively based on seniority. It was common for Marines who didn't have the qualifications but had the time and service to surpass more acceptable candidates. It was nearly impossible to create a fair promotion process. The Marine Corps eventually distributed the authorized commissions, but few Marine officers were satisfied with the decision. It was hard for the Corps to justify promoting one person over the other, especially since they had the same experience. Promotions based on seniority haunted the Marine Corps for years. Congress's decision to restrict resources for the military after World War I made it impossible for the Marine Corps to reach its authorized enlisted strength. Even though Congress authorized 27,400 enlisted, the Marine Corps only had an active duty strength of 16,061, almost 70% lower than 1918 numbers. The only reason the manpower didn't drop further was due to the tenacity, and persuasiveness of Commandant Lejeune. The low enlisted numbers made it challenging to support current U.S. missions abroad and at home. When other operations ended, instead of using the Marines serving, they were just cut from the Corps altogether. When the Marines left Santo Domingo, China, Nicaragua, and Haiti, instead of using these Marines for other purposes, the Corps was asked to reduce its strength equal to the number of Marines no longer needed to staff the engagements. The Economy Act of 1933 further reduced the strength of the Corps. Although there wasn't a shortage of officers, their retention and selection process had their own problems. The promotion process for officers needed an overhaul. For years, officers wanted a promotion system that considered other criteria rather than seniority the Navy attempted a few solutions to address this issue. Their first attempt was to eliminate men who were thought to fall below the acceptable standard of a naval officer. In 1916, the Navy adopted a selection system before being promoted to a higher grade. This system is the beginning of the officer promotion selection boards we see in the Marine Corps today. But this process only applied to the Navy. Lejeune repeatedly tried to use that system in the Marine Corps, but he only managed to apply it to general officers and colonels. It wasn't until 1934 that Congress passed an act that established promotion by selection and allowed for a proportionate increase in senior ranks to allow the flow in lower grades. Although this new system created a more appropriate selection process for Marine officers, it also pushed a lot of senior officers to retire. Once the criteria was made mandatory by Congress in 1934, nearly every sitting Congress that followed introduced modifications to the selection process and forced retirements. One of the most impactful was enforcing retirement on all officers except for lieutenants. But although the Marine Corps was able to figure out the promotion process for officers, the duties they were assigned to remained the same. So many officers were at a higher rank but still performed the same job they were doing before. The first few years after the war, the Corps just tried to settle into the everyday life of a post-war period. They didn't send Marines on any expeditions and only staffed a small brigade to maintain actions in Haiti. If you're interested in the Marines' activities in Haiti, we cover it in detail during Episodes 80 and 81. This loss had a significant impact on the Marine Corps. Retaining only 30% of its staff meant that the Corps lost a lot of the experience gained in France. They also lost many non-commissioned officers who served before the war and were vital for unit cohesion. Serving your country was no longer important for the younger generation, so the Marine Corps changed its messaging and incentives to keep up its recruiting numbers. They focused on sports, education, and public demonstrations to help bring in new bodies. Their focus on football and baseball was the most effective. The Corps organized football and baseball teams that competed with some of the best colleges in the United States. Smedley Butler put a lot of emphasis on the football team, and the Marine Corps saw an increase in enthusiasm from Americans. On November 10, 1923, the 148th birthday of the Corps, Marines loaded trains and traveled with the football team, which was appropriately named the Quantico Marine Devil Dogs. They headed to Ann Arbor, where they played the University of Michigan. The Marines ended up losing 6-26, to but 42,000 people watched them play. The enthusiasm of the Corps' football team caused them to lose sight of their primary purpose and Quantico started to concentrate more on football rather than building a solid military branch. They actually planned to build the largest football stadium in the United States at Quantico, but were brought back into reality when the Navy determined that the money it would cost to build that stadium could be used more appropriately. But Marines are used to doing more with less. Even though appropriations weren't available for constructing a football stadium, they continued to embark on this mission. In what will go down as one of the most useless working parties, Marines were used as the labor force to salvage scrap iron from Navy war activities and acquire sand and gravel to construct the stadium. The Marine Corps managed to scrounge up some funds, and they authorized the purchase of cement. Through scrounging and voluntold work, they estimated the cost of the entire stadium would be only $5,000, or about $80,000 in 2022 rates. But despite the excitement senior leaderships had for building a stadium, they didn't put in much thought on how they would fill the stadium with spectators, where the audience would come from, or even how people would arrive and depart the stadium. Needless to say, the Secretary of the Navy didn't take too kindly to the thoughtlessness of this project, and he said, quote, It was all damn foolishness to have ever started such a thing under such circumstances, unquote. By 1930, the excitement of a Marine football team died, and the team was discontinued. The baseball team followed suit the following year. Most senior officers in the Marine Corps felt that the four years a Marine served was in and of itself a sacrifice, and the United States should do everything they can to make sure that Marines were sent back to the civilian world with more than a piece of paper showing that they served honorably. One solution to a successful transition took the form of education, and after World War I, the Marine Corps started experimenting with schools. This initiative doesn't sound like much on the surface, but it's a big deal and something I really admire about the leadership of Marines in the past. They fought for an education program to help Marines after they got out. It gives a whole new meaning to never leave a Marine behind. Serving for four years and not having something to fall back on when you get out drastically impact troop success when the EAS. It was true in 1920, and it's probably more true today. So I'm going to play the parent role here for a second, and if you're currently serving in the military, have a plan on what you want to do when you get out. If you're lost, hit me up. I've already gone through that phase of my life, and I'm more than happy to help with any questions you might have. I don't have all the answers, but I can point you in the right direction. The Corps' initial education program only involved enlisted men, and it focused on continuing education. But this idea quickly evolved to include the entire Marine Corps. They partnered with the International Correspondence Schools for the necessary textbooks and curriculum for all courses organized by that institution. In November 1920, this initiative turned into the Marine Corps Institute. The new institution used the International Correspondent School's materials as the basis for the curriculum, and it staffed the institute with Marine instructors. The school immediately became popular, and one-third of the Marine Corps was studying some subject at the institution within three years. By autumn of 1921, the Marine Corps had settled into a peacetime reorganization. Training for land maneuvers began to kick off for Marines stationed at Quantico and the location for this training took place at old Civil War battlefields. They trained near the Battle of the Wilderness, the first clash of Lieutenant General Grant against Robert E. Lee during the Civil War in May 1864. A reinforced brigade with 155mm guns pulled by 10-ton tractors were part of the exercise, and the 29th President, Warren Harding, attended the event. The Marine Corps participated in similar activity during the following year, but this time at Gettysburg, and used the equipment left over from World War I. 4,000 Marines participated in this training. The Commandant of the Marine Corps described it as, quote, a miniature army, small but highly trained and powerfully armed, unquote. The year after, the Marines traveled to the Shenandoah Valley, and had a mock Civil War battle of New Market with cadets from the Virginia Military Institute. The following year, more than 3,000 Marines participated in another Civil War reenactment of the Battle of Antietam. But Marines carried out the reenactment with modern weapons and tactics. By early 1924, the Marine Corps started to shift the location of these training exercises from old Civil War battlefields to more suitable areas. The 5th Marines headed to Panama, and the East Coast Expeditionary Force left Quantico for training on the island of Culebra, off the eastern coast of Puerto Rico. In 1925, 1,500 Marines participated in joint operations with the Army and the Navy at Oahu, Hawaii. As the Marines tried to settle in a post-war country, so did the rest of the United States. One of the way post-war reactions manifested was in the form of crime waves. This is a fascinating aspect of war that is rarely mentioned. After every war, crime goes up. This phenomenon happens in every country going back for a very long time. Before World War I, the burglaries in the United States totaled $508,000. But in 1924, that number skyrocketed to 11000000 $812,000. During the Vietnam War, murder and non-negligent manslaughter in the U.S. more than doubled. There are a few theories about why the crime rate goes up after war. They range from demoralizing social and economic influences, troops not adjusting from war ethics in a combat zone to ethics in civil life, poverty brought on from prolonged conflict, to children at home lacking guidance from a stable parental figure. I'm not an anthropologist, so I don't have a good answer on why crime goes up, but it does happen. After World War I, crime manifested in the form of theft, mostly in mail and bank robberies. The post office couldn't handle the number of robberies, and the postmaster general asked President Harding for help. On November 7th, 1921, The President asked the Secretary of the Navy, quote, to detail as guards for the United States mails a sufficient number of officers and men of the United States Marine Corps to protect the mails from depredations by robbers and bandits, unquote. The very next day, the Secretary of the Navy sent the President's request to the Commandant of the Marine Corps in a letter titled, Marine Corps Postal Guards. In that letter, he instructed Major General Commandant Lejeune, quote, The primary purpose in assigning this duty to the Marine Corps is to prevent mail robberies. The situation is such that military measures must be employed and men detailed to this guard duty will be properly armed in order to make the most effective use of their weapons when necessary to protect the mails, 53 officers and 2,200 enlisted were sent to the principal mail distribution centers throughout the country. They were organized into 22 companies. Fifteen of those 22 were commanded by the Commandant, while the other seven were under the Department of the Pacific and served more of an administrative role. Marine Major Tom Barber was assigned command of the company in New York City, Major William Buckley commanded the company at Kansas City, Major Clark Wells was appointed St. Louis, and Major Samuel Budd took St. Paul. The Marines created a nationwide system of mail protection. When necessary, Marines were authorized to use their weapons for encounters with thieves. On November 11th, the Secretary of the Navy wrote a dramatic letter to the Commandant that stated, You must be brave, as you always are. You must be constantly alert. You must, when on guard duty, keep your weapon in hand, and if attacked, shoot and shoot to kill. There is no compromise in this battle with bandits. If two marines guarding a mail car, for example, are suddenly covered by a robber, neither must hold up his hands, but both must begin shooting at once. One may be killed, but the other will get the robber and save the mail. That is the spirit of the Corps. When our men go in as guards over mail, that mail must be delivered, or there must be a Marine dead at the post of duty. To be sure of success, every Marine on this duty must be as watchful as a cat, hour after hour, night after night, week after week. No Marine must drink a drop of intoxicating liquor. Every Marine must be most careful with whom he associates and what his occupations are off-duty. There may be many tricks tried to get you, and you must not be tricked. Look out for women. Never discuss the details of your duties with outsiders. Never give up to another the trust you are charged with. He ends the letter with I am proud of you, and I believe in you with all my heart. The whole mail must be delivered, or there must be a Marine dead at the post of duty seems unnecessary. But I may be looking at this from today's perspective. In 1920, the mail was a primary long-distance communication method, including classified information. I'm sure those two factors played a significant role in the decision to sacrifice Marines for mail. We still use the United States Postal Service as a classified mail courier today. But regardless of the reasoning, Lejeune issued his orders to the Marines. The Commandant's orders weren't nearly as dramatic, and Lejeune skirted around the order to sacrifice lives for the sake of protecting the male with his guidance, quote, to always have in mind a plan as to exactly how I would meet an immediate attack by the robbers, unquote. But Lejeune did authorize the use of deadly force if needed, quote, when necessary, in order to carry out the foregoing orders to make the most effective use of my weapons, shooting or otherwise killing or disabling any person engaged in the theft or robbery or the attempted theft or robbery of the males entrusted to my protection, The Marine Corps publicized the orders to shoot to kill throughout the United States to show U.S. citizens that something was being done about the banditry and to intimidate potential robbers. Marines operated in small groups, usually two to three men, they were highly effective at their mission, and the robberies stopped almost immediately. Three days after the Secretary of the Navy issued his orders to the Commandant, he wrote, quote, I am proud that my old corps has been chosen for a duty so honorable and so hard as that of protecting the United States mail, unquote. The mission ended on March 16th the following year, and the Marines didn't lose one piece of mail under their watch. Four years later, mail robberies started to pick up again, and the Postmaster General asked for more Marines for help. 2,500 men formed another nationwide mail protection system. Again, the Marines didn't lose one piece of mail, and the Post Office Department decided to take a more preemptive approach to robberies by providing its own guard force to protect against future thefts. By early 1927, The Marines guarding the mail were relieved, and many of them were sent to help in Nicaragua, which I covered in Parts 1 and 2 of the Banana Wars, Nicaragua episodes. Over in China, the view of the West started to change drastically after World War I. The country was plagued with civil wars, there was a growing control of warlords, and the nation's unstable economic and social affairs introduced a new phase of the Chinese national movement in 1923. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll continue our conversation on how the Marine Corps spent the interwar period. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is one that I've brought up before, but it's free on Audible at the moment, and it's worth repeating. It's War is a Racket, written by Smedley Butler. Every Marine listening knows who Smedley Butler is. He's regarded as a hero in the Marine Corps and we learn about Butler's two medals of honor he earned at Veracruz and Haiti. What you never hear about is his post-Marine Corps days. Butler served with the American League against war and fascism, and in 1935, he wrote an exposé titled War is a Racket, where he exposes the profit motive behind warfare. I'm bringing this book up again for a few reasons. One, this man is regarded as a hero for many Marines. The Marine Corps even has a major base named after him, Camp Butler in Okinawa. At the very least, we should at least listen to what this man has to say. Two, many of his arguments are applicable to what is going on today between Ukraine and Russia. It begs the question, what is the motive of the United States when we have absolutely no commitment to protecting Ukraine? Most U.S. citizens are against the country going to war and the Ukrainian government itself is telling Biden to calm down. The book is currently free on Audible, so use the free book you get with this promo code for something else you're interested in and download this one for free. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecore.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter Find out more information about each show and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.